Romans 7, 13, the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law then, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Word of the Lord. So we've got a good um, sermon title in Latin today, so hope everybody looked it up and figured out what it said before you got here. You've read these passages, you've come to your own um, little sermons in your minds, and that we, we're here prepared to do the work of worship. So keep in mind what we do when we come here, um, and since we try it, it, it can at times be easy to fall into the um, significant error of thinking that this worship service is, is for you and your entertainment. Uh, this worship service is for the Lord God. We do the work of worship to worship Him. We bring Him our worship. We bring Him our praises. So what are you bringing to Him now? Sounds like what I'm doing. Maybe I'm bringing Him an offering and I'm giving it to you and you guys get to receive it. The way in which you receive the Word of God read and preached is the way you are to worship God. It can be work. Because what Paul even says here is, there is something at work within me that doesn't let me do the very things that I want to do. So we had to be careful, because in this passage, it sounds a lot like Paul saying, I can't do anything good. I, he just got through saying a lot of other things in Romans that were a lot different than that. So a lot of people read this, and um, they say, well, Paul's not, when he says I, he's not talking about himself. He's using some other person, I being a person. It may be an unsaved person. Uh, maybe it's a person who's under the Jewish law. Um, and those sorts of things. And, and, and I've tried to honestly read different viewpoints and commentaries about these things, but I have to say, um, and any, any commentary or book or whatever I've read from a perspective that doesn't believe that this is Paul talking about his personal Christian regenerate experience, is just unfruitful to me in reading it. I can't even hardly get through it because it's just it, it's nonsensical to me. I say that in somewhat fear and trembling because there's a lot of smarter guys than me that have written commentaries on the book of Romans, and I'm like, you have written, this is nonsensical. However, somebody's being nonsensical because they're disagreeing with each other. 
So, um, good Christians have disagreed on the point as to, is Paul talking about himself? At what point in his life is he talking? Is he talking about some other people in some other situations? The most encouraging thing for us to be aware of is it doesn't matter where you fall on that particular fault, on that particular issue, what he's saying still holds because we are to apply this to ourselves. That being said, I think that we get the most out of this when we read Paul the way Paul wrote about himself and to understand a couple of things as we're reading it. So Romans 6, he talks about you are dead to sin. This is the believer, okay? Um, if you're not a believer, you are dead in your sin. So that's you know, Ephesians. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. There's nothing good that dwells within you at all. Nowhere. And so as the believer, when you've come to faith, you've died with Christ. He says that's what your baptism pointed to, that you've been washed of your sin. You're united to Christ's death. And not only are you united to his, to his death, you're also united to his, to his resurrection, to his life, so that we now are to walk in resurrection hope, that we are to walk in newness of life. We walk in the newness of the Spirit. So Paul wants to make it very clear that what he's saying is, even though you are dead to the law, so that the law has no power over you to condemn you, but also what he's saying is it doesn't have the power to, to make you better either. All the law does is to say, you are undone. No, you are not good enough. But in Romans 6, we're dead to sin, alive to God, dead to the law, alive in newness of life. So he wants us to get that. Then in Romans 7, he says, and the law kills. So he's like, okay, if we keep going on about the law like this, you're going to come to the conclusion that the law is a bad thing. And he's like, no, the law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. But there's sin within me, so that means it's not a good thing for me to try to follow the law. The law is good because what it does, it can tell you you need a Savior. But it will only do that by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you need a Savior. The law can show us our sin, but it has absolutely no power to save us. And that's a very important thing. The law can show you your sin, but it has no power to save you. It is a great it's great to use it as a moral guide. Like what's right? What's wrong? How am I supposed to know these things? Well, the law of God tells you what's right and what's wrong. But it is impossible for us to use for our salvation. So first point, if you like the points and things like that, a non-believer cannot make themselves righteous by trying to keep the law. A non-believer cannot make themselves righteous by trying to to keep the law. And what we're all going to see, also see is a believer cannot make themselves more righteous by keeping the law. Neither can a believer make themselves less righteous by breaking the law because our righteousness is in Christ. We are righteous in Christ. So, but a non-believer cannot make themselves righteous by trying to keep the law. So just Two passages in Romans. Romans 2. These are things that Paul's already said. Romans 2 verse 13. He says, It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, who will be declared righteous. And he's making a point. You know, you, you, you can't do this perfectly. For when Gentiles, because obviously he's talking to these Jewish people now, he's like, we have the law. It's like, it's not the hearers, it's the doers. 
For when Gentiles who do not even have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is an important theological point, okay? The non-believer, the Gentile it's called here, but they're non-believing Jews as well. The non-believing, unregenerate, non-born-again, natural person has the work of the law written on their hearts. Now, that's an interesting thing, the work of the law. And it's different because we're told that the believer now has the law written on their hearts. Different. The work of the law is this condemning aspect of it. It's your conscience that tells you this is good, this is bad. It is a very good thing that God in his common grace for all mankind has done certain things to restrain evil um, in the world. And one of these things, he's given men and women, children, consciences. The work of the law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts. Okay, so you got this. I think this is, you know, I'm doing good. I'm doing bad. Is this right? Is that right? They have these conflicting thoughts that either accuse or excuse them. Okay, so I did this terrible thing. I am evil. Non-believers can think that. I'm awful. I'm terrible. Then they can have another thought. But you know what? I'm better than these people. You know what? After all, I'm not so bad after all. Come to think of it, I'm pretty good. You know, and then they're also patting themselves on the back. And then they're like, wait a minute, I'm not. I'm terrible. I'm evil. You know, so it's like they have the work of law written on their hearts. But on that day when, according to my gospel, according to the good news of Jesus Christ, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. They're going to stand there and they're going to have their own consciences accuse and excuse them. And what God's going to do is say, I'm going to show you the truth about what you've done. And you even know that what you've done is wrong. So even the non-believer, if God just judged a non-believer just on the work of their own conscience, even a non-believer doesn't obey the law that's just written in their, on their hearts, the work of the law. So even a non-believer should be able to look at the law and go, yeah, I fall short of that. And then you get to um, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So then he says, what, then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So everybody is under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you skip down to verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So a non-believer cannot make themselves righteous by trying to keep the law, because they're going to do it imperfectly. They're going to do it where the law is going to come in and say, I mean, if you, if you get any person to say, hey, if you stand before a righteous and holy God who's like, and he demands absolute perfection by his standards, and even by the standards that you understand to a certain point, if he demands absolute perfection, the response that you'll get from some non-believers while you're saying that to them is they will look back in you at accusation and say, but nobody is like that. And you're like, That's exactly what Paul said. There's no not one who's done good. 
And it's amazing the number of times I've had non-believers say that. When you talk about, you know, you're going to be judged. But holiness is the standard. Perfection is the standard. It's not that God's here and you kind of got to get close. It's like God says, perfection is here and that's where you've got to be. Or I'll just say it like this. You ain't getting in because God will not allow any unrighteousness into his heaven. And so Paul says, Houston, we have a problem. We got a wiring problem, and the whole world's trying to do a paint issue. It's like you think your car just needs a wash, but man, that thing's engine's about to blow up. You know, you've got a deeper problem of which you are unaware. Your house, you're trying to paint your house, your wiring is all messed up, it's about to explode and catch on fire. But the world's out there just painting and painting and waxing and washing, trying to get it all clear. And they might even think they're looking inside. But Paul now is going to do a deep dive into himself so that he's going to talk about the law. And I think he's talking about, he's pretty clear, and I think we'll be able to see it pretty clearly, that he is saying, um, if, you, if you examine even your life in Christ by the law, you're going to see how far short you still fall. So that the Puritan, the, the, the Reformed writers um, understood this, early. Augustine taught this, and the Reformers taught this, so this is Paul. And one of the things that they get is this uh, Martin Luther, simul justus, or is it simul justice? didn't take Latin. My grandmother would roll over in her grave. Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously, or at the same time, just and sinner. So Luther said, believers are at the same time, just and sinner. Because he's trying to make the point, he's making the point that as a believer, we are saved and we're, we're righteous in Christ. But we do still have a sin issue within our lives. We do still have this thing going on within us. And I just had the thought recently, where it's not a unique thought, but I just sort of focused on it a little bit. It's like um, there are holy angels, elect angels who never fell, and they're just holy. They don't sin. They don't think about sinning. There's no sin within them. And then there's um, non-elect angels, they're called, where they, who've sinned. There's nothing good in them. They're evil, evil angels. And, and that's these two beings that are there. And then we have people. And there are people in which there's nothing good dwells. And then there's the believer that's a different category, a new man that's in Christ. And here we are, declared righteous in relationship with him, with, a, with his Holy Spirit, his love poured into our hearts, his Holy Spirit given to us. And yet, we still struggle with this sin. It's like we have a foot in both of these worlds. We're, we're partly holy and we're partly sinners. But you have to be very careful with that idea because, one, we can use it to excuse sin and say, well, then I'm just going to follow sin. But we'll talk about that in a second. But one of the things that we have to realize is that Paul never, when he's addressing the believer, he never calls sinners. He never says sinner to the believer. Anytime he's talking about sinners, he always calls them in our English Bibles. He uses, they use the Latin word saints. So that's what you're called as a believer, saints. Which is where we get the word sanctus, sanctuary. It's the word holy, hagias in Greek. You are holy ones. That's what he calls you. Set apart unto God's purposes. That's how Paul sees us as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write this holy word. So while we still have this sin that dwells in us, and Paul's going to address this, and does address this here, 
don't lose the idea, the fact of who we are in Christ. And so the second point that we need to understand is there is no sinless perfectionism for the believer. The believer will never in this life arrive at sinless perfection. So you're like, well, what about Paul? Surely Paul. Surely Paul. If Paul wasn't sinlessly perfect, how can we even believe his word? And that's what the liberal church says. The reason Paul says that only men should be leaders in the church is because he didn't like women. He was misogynist. He didn't like women at all. Paul had sin problems that are expressed through the Bible. So that's why a lot of people don't want to say Paul had to be sinless. No. Paul just needed to have what he said to be guided perfectly by the sinless one so that what he wrote in Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit so that we have holy men, simply men who've been set apart, guided by the Holy Spirit so that the word itself says this is theonoustos. It is God-breathed word of God so that even though all the men who wrote the Scripture, sinners also they may be, when the Holy Spirit, God spoke through them, it was through a sinless perfection. So what Paul is saying is, and I think Paul, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure he's well ahead of most of us as far as sanctification. Like he's, he's, he's seen God surely this close to God. You know, he recognizes his holiness. But what we see again and again from Paul, I think, is that whole idea is like the closer he gets to the glory of God, the more he recognizes how far short he still falls. And so he says, let's do this deep dive. But first, this idea of sinless perfectionism, just look quickly at Philippians chapter 3. So it's these little letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians 3, 7. He's going to read along and listen to what Paul says about himself. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. So he, as a Hebrew, as a Jew, he, he, he really um, did better than anybody else. I mean, he had, he's like, I'm the Billy Graham of the Jews kind of. He's like, I'm the top. But it was all by works of law. It was all by, you know, I'm so good, I'm so great. It was all by this pride and all these things. So the law hadn't really been at work in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. But then the Holy Spirit begins to actually apply the law to the regenerate Paul who says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
So perfection is not necessary for Christ to call you his own. Because Christ has called us his own, now Paul says, I'm pressing on. Not so that I can, not, he's contrasting this. It's not because I've got to keep the law, but it's because I now know Christ. My heart has been changed. Brothers, I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. So for you, that could be all sorts of things. It could be sin. It could be bad mistakes. It could be folly. It's just all these things in our lives, all these things. And we're just, or it can be for Paul, he's like, these things I'm ashamed of now that I used to see is this is awesomeness. This is what makes me who I am. This is what makes God love me. This is what makes me, you know, whatever it is in your past that you now see there's shame in that. And there's, there's, I, I was losing things. I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. So let those who are, viewer, who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, and he talks about join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you often and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So you see what Paul's wanting. He's wanting this transformation that's already taking place within him. He's still going like, I want to have this transformation in my glorified body. And it's not because I hurt and I ache and I, you know, there is that. But he's like, oh, wretched man that I am who will release me from this wretched power of death. So you got to, Paul is not talking in Romans 7 about his level of depravity. He is talking about what I see when I look in from my perspective at my own heart and my own life and my own flesh. And so Paul sets up this old man, new man thing where it's like the flesh is that part of you that has been crucified, but it's still wriggling and it's still fighting and it's still at work. And if you're a believer and you don't think you have any sin within you, I hope Paul throws, I hope you get thrown down by the Holy Spirit the same way Paul does so that his, your eyes are open that you might see there's still sin that dwells and clings so easily to us. So we have to be careful. 2 Corinthians 4. So before these letters of Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. For what we proclaim, Paul's talking now, what we proclaim is not ourselves. So Paul's not up here saying, hey, I'm your standard of righteousness. Watch me because I'm perfect. Watch me because I... Because he realizes if I do that, that's pride. Is it prideful for God to do it? It's like, no. Jesus is walking one day. He is good. He is perfect. He is holy. He is without sin. The only one. And a man goes up to him and he says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, why do you call me good? There are none who are good, no, not one, only God. Now, people look at that and they go, wait a minute, he is good. Why did he say that? That guy didn't know that about him. He just thought that Jesus was some regular teacher, and he's calling him good. And Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? There are none who are good. He's like, you don't know who you're talking to, for one thing. He's like, you are talking to the Son of God incarnate. 
So yeah, I just happen to be good, but you don't know that yet. Why are you calling me good? Because there are none who are good. And this is what Paul is struggling with as well. 2 Corinthians 4, again, 5 through 7. We do not proclaim ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves, your servants, the church's servants. Why? For Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've been enlightened, and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, but we have this treasure, this light, this gospel, this truth, this glory of God. We have this, we've got this treasure, but you have it in a clay jar, our bodies, cracked, feeble, and why? Why doesn't God put this treasure in people who have obtained like real righteousness so that when they go forth, you can say, they say, look at me. You know, that's why we got to be careful with testimonies sometimes too because your testimony is not necessarily gospel. It's in, you know, showing how God's been at work in your life. But you know, we're not proclaiming ourselves. We're proclaiming Christ Jesus as Lord. But you have this great treasure in charge of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Then he goes on. We are, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And he goes on so that his point, the only point I'm trying to make right now is there's no sinless perfection for the believer. And you do have this great treasure, but it is in a jar of clay. And since it's in a jar of clay, you're able to reach out to other sinners and say, I'm a jar of clay too. And don't be surprised when every now and then you chip, when every now and then you fall, when every now and then you fail. But when you fail and when you fall and when you return, just like we read in Psalm 51, sinners then call me, restore me to, your, to the joy of your salvation, and sinners then will learn from me. So that what you're able to say is, not from us, not to us, not to us, but to thy glory alone be the glory. Romans 7.15 you know, Dan Landrum sort of introduced me to this Legacy Standard Bible, and um, which is the New American Standard update a little bit. But it's uh, interesting how they translate this particular verse, and it's right. He says, "For I am working for what I am working out, I do not understand. What I am working out, I do not understand." So in our trans, in the ESV here in verse 17, what I do, I do not understand. I do not understand my own actions. But what it literally says is, I am work, what I am outworking, I do not understand. And it might sound familiar to you if you know Philippians 2.12, which says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, there should be some outworking of your salvation. And Paul is saying, there's also, there's, a, there's an outworking of sinful stuff left within me. Why does that stuff keep working itself out? What's up with that? And Paul's doing, like I said, he's going to take this deep dive and he's going to say, I'm going to look at my life according to the standard of the holy law. And I'm going to look in there and we're going to talk about what's happening there. And he's trying to show us that we need to be careful not, well, 7.14 says, for we know. So he starts with this we. So he wants us to be drawn into this experience. We know that the law is spiritual. Now, how do you know that? Who's the we? It's only a believer. Non-believers don't know, they don't say, hey, the law is godly. That law comes from God. The law is holy. 
And non-believers just like, yeah, no, I got no, you know, not going to say this about it. But then he goes from the we. Now we know this, so so get with me here. Is everybody with me? Paul's like, so we're like this. But I am carnal. I am fleshly, sold under sin, and I think it's meant to be like, not you, Paul. You got to be talking about somebody else. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. And so we got to go, okay, so Paul is showing us the work of the law, even on his heart as he looks at this by the law, and a non-believer does this, and a non-believer might say the same thing. I do things I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, I do, the things I I want to do, I don't do, you know, we all know this thing, this is one of my favorite passages, because it just sounds like a... I don't know. Thing I do, I don't do. Thing I don't want to do, I do. You know, it's like you, you say, I'm never going to do that again. Never! You know, we, we call those, typically the, we, um, we do those on uh, what's it, New Year's Eve resolutions. And everybody makes a joke about that. Because it's like, don't make a New Year's resolution. You know you're going to break it. You know, how many days into the year before you break it? Because you resolve never to do such and such again. And then that very thing you do. It's a weird thing that happens in our person's yeah? I mean, what kind of person is it? So I don't, don't do, don't do that. And then I watch myself doing it. What? And that's Paul saying. He says, I see that at work in myself too. But what the non-believer, can, what's he do with that? What does she do with that? What does a non-believer do with this thing that's like, I'm not good. I'm okay. It's like, it, it, you've got to psychologically, you've got to come up with some way to deal with that. And it will always involve suppressing the knowledge of God in their unrighteousness. It will always involve that. They'll come up with different ways, but it certainly will be suppressing the knowledge of God. And so you also have to be careful as a believer. If you start to work on this in your life, that's why I think it's really good that Paul added this in here so that he knows it's like, don't start to think you've entered into sinless perfection or that you ought to be sinlessly perfect or what your psychological self will do is go, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's like that little dog drinking tea in that meme where everything's burning down and he's just, I'm okay, I'm okay. That kid's swinging on the swing and everything's blowing up behind him. I'm okay. You know, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. You know, it's like I can't be. And so you just become this person who's not glorying in Christ Jesus. Paul is showing us that we need to be careful not to suppress the knowledge of our sin in our godliness. And the last thing that Paul wants us to do is to see ourselves as our own Savior. Because a sinner can do nothing to make themselves righteous, and a believer can do nothing to make themselves more righteous than they are in Christ. But the believer has the law, the love of God poured out into our hearts and is given the Holy Spirit, and therefore there's a new man, a new heart, a spiritual person, a pneumatikos rather than the the, um, sarkinos. There's sarks and there's pneuma, there's spirit and there's flesh. We are now... Paul says, I'm still fleshly because I haven't been completely converted into nothing but spirit. So that's why he's able to say, walk in the spirit and not in the flesh so that you don't satisfy the desires of the flesh. If you didn't still have that problem within you, he'd have no need to say that. So as you read the scriptures, you see these things and Paul is saying, like, look at this. Point three being there is a battle set up in the inner life of a believer. And that's what you see in, in, in Romans. I mean, starting there in verse 16, he, <clears throat> he's just talking about this, this battle. If I do what I don't want, I agree that law is good. So that's something a believer, you know, the law is good. 
So it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwelling within me. So he's got this thing. He's going, is there inner man that recognizes this stuff is right and good? But I still keep doing this thing for I know that nothing good dwells within me. So now he wants to say that is in my flesh. He's talking about my flesh right now. Just looking at who I am apart from Christ. Just looking at the law, which he's like, don't do unless you need to really understand the grace of Jesus Christ. For I have the desire to do what's right, but then not the ability to carry it out. He's not talking about all the time. He's just talking about sometimes... I've, I know what it means to have this thing, and we should all. It's like, you know, and yet you just, what's that deal? I mean, why can't we just enter sinless perfection? For I don't do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin dwelling within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. Okay, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's, that's a believer talk. I delight in the law of God. John Murray, in Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he writes this. He said, there is a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. It's one thing for sin to live in us, and it's another for us to live in sin. And so we have to be aware of that. And then this guy, I was reading John Stott, Stott, and he quoted Arndt Gingrich, who I've never heard of before, but I like the word Arndt, A-R-D-N-T, I think it is, or whatever, Gingrich, I've heard of that name. No one who is a stranger to the grace of God, no one who is a stranger to the grace of God, okay? If you don't know anything about the grace of God, no one who is a stranger to the grace of God can say, I joyfully agree with the law of God. Because if you don't have the grace of God, the law of God, nothing but con- condemning. Nothing but condemning. Nothing but condemning. Now your conscience might excuse you because you keep suppressing that. But you cannot, as a non-believer who's not experienced the grace of God, you can't, as a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't understand the grace of God, then you cannot say, I rejoice in the law of God in my inner being. If you've not tasted his grace, you cannot say this. So last point, four, from where does my help come? And this is what he's driving us to. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So here's what he's done. And he says, wretched man that I am. I think what he... Paul, especially I've seen this in Philippians and others, the prison epistles, he's in prison and he's writing. And then the book of the letter of Philippians is um, all about joy. It's called the joy book. It's all about joy, joy, joy all over the place. It's like, he's in prison. Why is he in there writing about joy? That's called Paul so awesome. He's still writing about joy. And I think, yeah, but I think if you're going to write and you want to hear something, Paul didn't have Philippians to read. Paul had to write Philippians. So the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to write all about joy while he's in prison so that the book of Philippians is ministering to Paul where he needs it. And this is what's happening here. He's like, I'm going to take a deep dive with the law where I am now. And what I see is if I want to keep the law, I don't want to do I still do it. I mean, what kind of stuff is he talking about? You know, he's not talking about I'm out there murdering people. He did that when he followed the law. And so now what he wants to do is love perfectly. 
And I imagine while he's being stoned, while he's being beaten, while he's being name-calling, and he's remembering Stephen, who cried out, Father, don't hold this sin against them. As he's reminded of Jesus crying out on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And then he sees these enemies of his, and he has some pretty hateful thoughts about it. And he's like, this is wrong, I shouldn't do this, why am I like this? You know, he just sees this, and he's like, praise be to God, and he moves on with it. You know, I don't know how, how deeply he struggled with different things in his life, but he's saying, as, a, as I look at it, if I want to look at how good am I keeping the law, I come to this conclusion, wretched man that I am. And then he says, you know what, I'm sick and tired of this, I can't deal with this for long. I can't, it will drive you to despair. I mean, if you are a legalist and you think that you keep the law, you're, just, you're deceived. But if you look at the law as your standard, and I've got to be good, I've got to be perfect, I've got to be this, I've got to be that, it's just going to drive you to despair. And Paul's like, yeah, wretched man that I am. So can we move forward? You want me to get you up off of this? And let's get up so we can do something else rather than talk about how bad and terrible we are. But without Christ, there you lie, dead in your sin. And so that's why when we do altar calls, we're not going to get up here and have an altar call and, and play music softly and try to convince somebody, please, to come forward. Because we don't believe in decisional regeneration, that you get saved by a decision you make. You get saved when the Holy Spirit brings you back to life and the, the gates of hell will not keep you from coming forward to where? To Christ. So we proclaim Christ Jesus and Him crucified so that when you're saved, there's this thing. Our, our grandkids have been staying with us some, and so they want to watch Christmas stuff. Don't tell Chandler. They're already watching Christmas stuff. But the Grinch, was, yeah, it's the, the one with Jim Carrey. It's like, oh, ah, his heart starts to change. And if you read The Grinch, I love the end of The Grinch, too. I mean, it's Dr. Seuss. I mean, it's a very good story about transformation. Something just changes. I mean, that's what happens. It's not like, let me start doing better. Something internally changes. So he says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so I think he's preaching to himself. Because he knows the answer. He's not crying out in despair. He's crying out in hope. He's like, I'm, up, I'm about to preach the gospel to myself, and we're going to write it down, and the Holy Spirit is going to be outpoured through me, and we're all going to get to figure out what this means to be, re to be released from this wretched body of death that we still experience even as believers. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he still adds this. Myself, I serve the law of God with my mind. Something inner man, I've got I'm serving the law of God, but in my flesh, I still serve the law of sin. Amen. Let's go home. You can't. You got to look at eight, and we'll we'll exegete this next time. But this is what he says: There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And to me, the therefore makes no sense. There. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like you just got through talking about how bad you are. He's like, nope. Praise be to God who will release me, Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, I remember, I know, I declare there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is preaching the gospel to himself again and again and again and again. Who needs the gospel? You need the gospel. I need the gospel. You need it every day. You need it every minute. This is the gospel. You come to the table. That's the gospel. You're applying it to yourself. You're renewing these covenant promises. God's like, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. You still need me. There's no need to come to the table if you don't need Christ anymore. And you don't need Christ anymore if by his Holy Spirit, he's just all of a sudden matrixed you into the perfect person. You're not. And he's like, wretched body of death. 
The law of sin, verse 2, chapter 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. You have a decision to make every day. Every moment as a believer, are you going to walk in the flesh or are you going to walk in the spirit? Are you going to set your mind on the things of the flesh? And you might ask yourself, what is that? Oh, you'll figure it out because it leads you in a downward spiral. And then when the Holy Spirit says, all right, now let's go up. And you're like, woo, all right. That's a little Pentecostal. You're welcome. But you get the point. It's like all of a sudden you recognize the height because you've been in the depth. You recognize the light because you've been in the darkness. You recognize you're in a valley of the shadow of death because the world's not always like that. If you lived in the valley of the shadow of death, it'd just be the way it is. And for some people it is. But when the Holy Spirit is in there, there's a change. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, and this is talking to believers, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is where you have to go when you hit the problems of life. This is where you have to go because Satan will tempt you to despair and tell you of the guilt within. But then, what does the song say? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So let's pray. Father God, help us to know that when Satan accuses us, our flesh accuses us, the world accuses us of unrighteousness, that we're able to say, I know, wretched man that I am, please, Lord Jesus, help me to set my heart, my mind, my soul, my being on the Spirit. Help me to know I have a resurrected Savior. I'm hidden in him. My sin is forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in me. I am in you. We can move forward. I will move forward. And by your spirit, I will set my heart, my mind. Lord Jesus, give us more faith that we might set our hearts on you by your spirit. As we come to your table to know we receive your body, we receive your blood, the blood of the new covenant wherein there is no condemnation. For the sin's penalty has been paid and we have the ability to walk in the light. And when we see within us this law at work of sin and death, help us to say thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. And then help us to walk and not to live in sin, even though it still dwells within us. We look forward to the day when we will be glorified and made like you, that we might see you face to face and eat with you at your table. And we pray this in Jesus' name as we come to get a foretaste of that now. In his holy name we pray. Amen.